to Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Talking local globally. This podcast explores ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris Agreement. Welcome to the sixth episode of Capital Locust. In this episode, I'll be talking to Jesper Stephenson, a senior partner of Dege Consult and a leading expert on fiscal transfers from central to local governments and author of Performance-Based Grants, Best Practices and International Experience. Jesper has been involved in local government finance reforms in more than 45 countries around the world. Jesper has been one of the pioneers behind the Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility, which is a 15-country facility that recognizes the role of local governments and local government finance in delivering real climate adaptation. Jesper has also been influential in designing, putting together the, if you like, the fiscal skeleton of the state, the way that the state works in terms of its fiscal relations between central governments, provincial governments sometimes, or the second tier of government and local government in, well, maybe one third of the countries on, on the face of the planet. Um, Jesper has unrivaled knowledge of local government finance, the way that the intergovernmental fiscal transfer system works. And it's a great privilege and pleasure to be talking to him and to be able to imbibe some of this knowledge uh, and to put it to work uh, across the world in ensuring that local governments can play the role uh, in accelerating the Agenda 2030 and the uh, Paris Agreement. Jesper Stephenson, um, expert in intergovernmental fiscal transfers, local government grants, that is grants from central government to local government using uh, fiscal resources. Um, is that a correct description of your expertise? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it is correct. I've been working the last 30 years in around yeah, maybe 45 countries on intergovernmental fiscal transfer reform programs, Africa, Europe, Asia and Pacific. So yeah, <laughs> a little bit of uh, experiences to share there, and uh, this is my has been my main area of work for yeah, some decades. decades yeah, so uh, and and I've seen the development and the trends over time. Uh, so the, I think it's a very interesting area to work in. Absolutely, it, it's a real pleasure to talk to you again, uh, Jesper. I heard you say forty-five countries there. So every time we speak. Yeah that number ticks up a little bit. I remember the first time we met, you were saying, well, I've been working on in this area in about 12 countries, so you're now reaching 45. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's 20 years since we met or something like that, and I try to cover at least one to two new countries every year to get experiences, but also still to keep you know contact with some of the, the other countries which I used to work in, like Uganda, where I've been involved the last 25 years, and of course, it's hard to keep track on, on all the other countries uh, and at the same time get new experiences. I think it's very important to share experiences across the countries because there's a lot of lessons learned from one country to another. And um, so, so sometimes my role is also to, to bring uh, information across countries uh, instead of just designing something. It's, it's important to share information and lessons learned. So that's what I'm trying to do as well. 
Right. So just to bring this conversation in the context of the podcast series. So what we're discussing in this podcast series, Capital Lowcast, is the importance of local government finance really as development finance. You know, uh, of course, the United Nations Capital Development Fund, it's part of the UN and it's working in the development area. But we are also a center of excellence for local government finance. And we passionately believe that the world needs a, a, a local government finance to become a pillar of international development finance if we're going to achieve Agenda 2030 and the Paris Agreement. So we'll come on to talking about that in a while. But of course, before we get there, one key element of local government finance are the transfers or the grants provided from central government to local government. Now, you've yeah. made that your area of expertise, uh, and I'd like you to maybe explain to the listeners what those transfers are, why they are so important, and maybe also to dispel a couple of myths. I mean, some people believe that it's only for one category of country or another category of country, but of course, as yeah. we both know, all countries, rich and poor, north and south, east and west, there has to be some form of redistribution of the fiscal resources from the central government back down to the local territorial administrations that generated that wealth in the first place. So it's kind of yeah. like a recycling of fiscal resources. It's not a gift yeah. from central government to local government because that money came from somewhere in the first place. But could you maybe yeah. for the, for the uh, yeah. listener explain what the intergovernmental fiscal transfers are? First of all, um, if you look at the recent surveys, about 25% of all public expenditures are done by uh, subnational local government. And if you look at the public investment, it's about 40% uh, worldwide. And there's a recent study by OECD, which has also been supported by UNCDF, of around 100 countries, 101 countries exactly, which has looked at the figures from two years ago. And this is the data, 25% of, of all public uh, spending on investments and, uh, and all this uh, is, is done by subnational government. But if you look at then how these expenditures have been funded, uh, the intergovernmental fiscal transfer is by far the most important single revenue source for local governments. Um, worldwide, it's about 51%. But if you go to the LDC countries and African countries, it's more than 60% of their local revenues which derive from, from transfers from central government. And then you can ask, why is it like that? Why is transfers the most important part of it? But before we go there, you're fully right, it is in all countries. I haven't seen any country where there have not been any kind of transfers from, from central government to, to local governments. Even in the high-income countries, about 46% of their revenues comes from uh, transfers from central government. So, uh, And the same for the OECD countries. So it's not like uh, transfers are only for the poor countries, or no. Actually, it is. It is more or less uh, equally distributed across the, the world. These figures. Um, but of course, uh, we can ask the question then: Why the transfers are very important? First of all, I, I would like to mention maybe five or six core reasons for that. Um, the first is that, and typically, you, it's easier to uh, decentralize the functions for service delivery to local governments. They're closer to the citizens. They have party advantages, they can do things more effectively at the local level. But when it comes to the revenues, it's often very hard to, to decentralize revenues 
taxes, many local revenues, many revenues are easier collected at the central level. Um, the VAT, uh, different kind of taxes, are, the economy of scale is simply easier when you, when you collect at the, at the central level. But when the local governments have all, most of the functions, because they are able to provide services closer to the citizens and, and adjust to their local needs, they, of course, need part of this, uh, these proceeds from the centrally collected revenues at that level. So the first uh, issue is really to tackle the, what is called vertical gap, a vertical fiscal gap between the, the expenditure assignments and the revenue assignments that you have at the local level. We have much more expenditure assignments, but maybe you have very few revenue assignments you can tap into. Um, you maybe have property tax and a few other taxes, but most of the taxes around the world are actually collected by central government. So that's the first reason. Now, the second reason is that if you if you don't have any transfers, you will see a system which is not promoting any kind of equitable development. So you need typically a system to equalize between the more wealthy and the, and the, and the very poor local government. So most of the countries, and there we have both OECD countries and African countries and LDC countries around the world have systems of what we can call grand equalization system, where you try to ensure a balanced development in the country whereby local governments which have low tax potential and high expenditure needs will be compensated for that through the transfer system. So the kind of grand equalization system is, is typically developed more or less complicated in every country, but I will say most of the countries try to, to have a balanced development. Also to avoid that you know, the areas which are complete outside of the development you know, initiatives uh, or you have urbanization which is not efficient. And uh, so so I, I will say this is the second uh, most important uh, objective of the grant to ensure a balanced development in the country. And then the third one is that there are certain functions where if, if you don't support it from conditional grants or earmark grants, the service will simply not pr be produced in a, in a sufficient level or scale. For example, uh, water purification, environmental protection, parks and, and so green areas. Now, if you allow local governments only to, to finance that without any support, they might not produce the service to a sufficient scale. They will uh, they will try only look at their own benefits, but these benefits could also be uh, of use for other local governments and, and for the country as such. The same with education. You know, if you have a strongly educated group of children in one local government, it benefits the whole country. So you need to ensure that these kind of services are provided to a sufficient scale and you use then the, the earmarked, the, the conditional grants to ensure that these uh, positive externalities are addressed. And so this is also very important and uh, is used in, in most countries. So to ensure that certain services are provided, which will not have been addressed by local governments in a sufficient scale if you just allow it to them. And then the, the, the next one is the, to ensure that capital investments are, are done sufficiently, um, you know, targeted investments in, um, in areas which are of national importance. Um, there are also a number of countries which are using regional development grants to ensure that, that certain capital investments are, are provided, infrastructure grants and things like that. And then the most uh, recent grants, I think the last decade or 10, 15 years have been to ensure to use the grants to improve the local government's performance incentives to provide services in a more effective manner, good financial management, governance, and to target vulnerable groups. 
And that's an area where particularly UNCDF has, has a lot of success uh, in uh, piloting uh, grants where you link the size of the grants, the access to the grants with the performance of local governments. So through that, you can provide good incentives for, for local government to provide services in an accountable manner. And that's an area we have seen now kind of expanded across the world. Uh, more than 25 countries are using this linkage between the, the amount of grants with the performance of local governments. Um, it's a little bit you can compare with the, the climate situation whereby countries also are incentivized to reduce their emissions through a, a reward system internationally. The same is now happening for, for local governments where they try to incentivize that they address certain issues. The most recent area have been on the area of, of climate change adaptation, where you link the transfers to local governments with the ability and their efforts in the climate change adaptation uh, to ensure that they walk the extra mile to address the, the vulnerable areas in the area of climate change. So you can, you can actually link um, the grant system to the whole climate change funding arrangement. But that's perhaps the things we can we can come back to if, if you're interested. That, um, But that's an area where I've been heavily involved the last 10 years, starting in, in Bhutan. It is expanded now, and the system is used in about 12 countries where you link, you, you provide climate adaptation resilient grants to ensure that uh, they, they, at the local level, where they feel the impact from climate change, that local governments are addressing that in all kind of service delivery, from infrastructure provision to all the services, um, awareness raising, and so on and so forth. And you can see that if you provide a little bit extra grants, if they walk the extra mile, you will also see that um, improvement in, in the whole situation of, of uh, uh, resilience terms of building up the resilience of local government in the area of climate change. So, and, and the same in other areas, actually, uh, where earmark grants can be used to incentivize specific uh, services for local governments. So they have an important, very important role, the grants and the transfers or around the world. Uh, it's the most important revenue source. It, it, it will depend, of course, on the objective of the grants, how they are designed. But uh, you cannot get away with the transfers. Uh, and, and you're fully right. There are some countries which I've been working in. They're saying, ah, over some years, we will we will only use these grants in a few years, and then local governments can provide all services. That's not the case in, in any country if, if you want to be serious. But of course, it's a great variation across the countries, how they have developed uh, their system of funding. Um, but but uh, the transfers are here to stay. There's no doubt about that, to address all these four or five Key, key objectives I mentioned. Right. No, very clear, Jesper. So I think, again, for the benefit of the of, of the listeners, let's just uh, put two myths to rest. As you quite rightly say, all countries, whether wealthy or poor, the local governments require a form of fiscal transfer from central government to local government. It's not a matter of local governments being self-sufficient through their own revenue or the private sector. There are things that local governments need to do with money from central government all over the world, rich or poor. But then the first point you made, which I think is also important, is to understand that this is not a bad thing and nor is it a charity. It's not a handout that central government is giving to local government. As you explained very well in your first reason, there are expenditure assignments and revenue assignments. So central government is good at collecting tax. It collects VAT, 
It collects income tax. It collects taxes on exports, taxes on minerals and things that are produced, royalties, etc. So it's good at collecting taxes. Now, those taxes come from somewhere. They come from the territory. They come from the cities, the rural areas, the, the, the provinces. So the revenue assignment is efficiently done centrally, often. But the expenditure of that revenue is often more efficiently done locally. So it's actually yeah. just two sides of the same coin. It's not as if central government is giving away its own money because that money in the first place was generated across the territory. Um, so I think the, these are two uh, elements that are really important to understand. Yeah. And then combined with the third one that you mentioned, although it would be very unfair if, for example, all the money went to the capital city because that was where most of it was generated or all the money went to one province yeah, where yeah, the exactly. mining industry was. So there's also an element of equalization yeah. there. So these are common principles yeah, exactly. of fiscal organization. They are not specific to one or other type of country. You think that that's a fair assessment? Uh, 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 exactly. Uh, Again, to give you one example of the latest about the equitable development, now, if you allow local governments in a country like Denmark, Denmark is a very small country, but even in Denmark, there's a huge disparity in the revenue that local governments can collect. For example, if you allow local governments to uh, collect uh, property tax, business tax, income tax, and so on, and you don't have a system of equalization, of course, the local governments, which have Bilon, the Lego, Lego, the toy Lego, the factory they're laying there, they will be able to, and just because that company has selected that local government 50 years ago, that that local government will be able to reduce the taxes and provide the best services in the country without doing any efforts in, in tax collection. So uh, just because of that one local government with one factory lying there will you know, not be fair for all the others which are also providing a lot of services. And, and the rural areas will not be able in, in the western part of the country to provide any services, which will then impact on the health, education, which will impact again on, on the whole, you know, development in the country because we, we need a, a good education system, health system, social system in order to provide all the, the welfare system, but also to have economic development. And if you only have that in Copenhagen, that the whole, the, the country will break down. There will be conflicts. There will be a lot of, you know, discussions and, and uh, and uh, there will be perhaps no agriculture, which is also there because the, the farmers will say we can't have, we don't have schools, we don't have health systems, and, and all this. So even in a small country like Denmark, the system of grand equalization is extremely important. Um, but um, and but of course in larger countries uh, you see even bigger disparities in the mountain in, in countries like Bhutan, Nepal. If you don't support the mountainous areas, you suddenly will have no people living there, and and uh, there might be important for other uh, reasons. Um, so, so it's extremely important to ensure. It can always be discussed whether the equalization should be 100 percent or 70 percent or 80 percent, but um, there is a need for a, a balanced development to to ensure that uh, you have um, development across the the country. That's also the reason why the EU system has regional development funds to ensure that. That there are there is a development everywhere in in, in the country. Of course, there's also uh, there are many other reasons for that. Security risk uh, easy to 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 ensure that that um, uh, you know if, if disparities are too high, it can also develop into conflict and and um, and other sorts of things. But but basically, it's also a, an efficiency uh, you know objective that 
in order to provide a good service in our, across the country, you really need uh, equitable development. And that goes both for the expenditure needs. You have areas where they have a lot of old elderly people or more children. They have, of course, they have higher expenditure needs. You have areas where, because of certain reasons, they have higher revenue potential, so they can easily, you know, rip the benefits of that. And and therefore, they they really need to 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 balance that that system there. So that's very important. Uh, in in terms of grant design, there are countries which have these specific equalization schemes separately designed, or there are others which have incorporated them into a block grant system or capital grants. Right. That varies greatly, right. um, but it is extremely important. So I'd like to um, ask you. But uh, I also agree with your first uh, first uh, statement that. Actually, all the revenues are typically generated at the local level. It's just a question of how they are they are actually collected, and the, the collection is is often easier to do centrally for some some kind of taxes. Of course, there can be user fees, charges, other smaller taxes which can be collected at the, at the local level. But the capacity to develop that whole tax administration system in many countries, particularly development countries, is not available. Uh, so, therefore, there is really a need to transfer back the proceeds of these revenues to the local government where it is actually generated in the first place. Um, so, that that's very, very important um, point to, to make. Very um, clear, Jesper. Of course, we didn't talk about uh, another very important issue, which is the... Um, the design of the grants. Exactly, Jesper. Yeah. I'm going to come on to that in a moment. Um, and yeah. just to introduce that topic, in your experience of 45 countries, and can you give me a couple of really clear examples of where this kind of design of how fiscal resources are distributed across a territory through intergovernmental fiscal transfers has really made a difference where a government has reformed the system or a new country has been created and the system has had to be built from scratch and it has really made a difference so maybe a couple of examples yeah. clear examples of of where uh, intergovernmental fiscal transfer reform or redesign has transformed a country over to you uh, jesper yes yes uh, yeah i think that despite the all the challenges you see in a country like, uh, for example, Uganda. I think this is one of the countries which were one of the first countries to, in Africa to really develop a, a genuine intergovernmental fiscal transfer system. It has all the elements of equalization, vertical fiscal gap uh, support, grants, and all this. And of course, they have worked over the last 20 years in gradually improving the, the transfer systems to make it efficient. At the moment, they have a reform targeting. Uh, the objectives of a more efficient uh, service, a more equitable service, and a better performance of local government, and they try to combine it in, in the, the transfer system. It is, of course, never ideal, but I think it has really generated uh, local services, and, and also it has been documented many times that uh, it has expanded local service provision. It has always been a challenge for the quality of these services to follow, and that's where the new system of performance assessment will come in to ensure that also the quality is there so that local governments which are also providing the, the, the quality and services will get you know some rewards for that and incentives but also that the monitoring system is, is improved but basically it has enabled local governments to provide a better service uh, over time over the last 20 years and uh, I benefited looking at it over the 20 years so I, I came to Uganda first time in 95 and I see the situation today it cannot be compared you see school uh, 
everywhere, health centers everywhere, water supplies systems. And this has all been generated by the local government system. They have been responsible. They have received 95% of their revenues at the local level comes from intergovernmental fiscal transfers. So it is the main revenue source for local governments in Uganda, basically. So so that has improved. Um, another country is uh, a small country in, in Asia. And you can take, uh, for example, Bhutan. Bhutan uh, developed the, the annual capital grant system back in about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, it has worked quite well uh, in terms of distributing money to the rural areas, have been ensured that civil servants, accountants are working in all uh, 205 local governments. Uh, they have um, both block grants and other specific grants. And the, the most recently, they have linked it to the climate change funding. So um, they have managed to you know, attract funding from different partners to the local government. Because the, the annual capital grant system is working, the development partners can see that money is spent well. They have managed to attract funding for, for climate change adaptation work at the local level, which has really improved their resilience in terms of the strength of the roads, the bridges, the water supply systems, the schemes, and, and all this. And now that they try to get access to the Green Climate Fund to upscale uh, these experiences. So it's another good example of, you know, intergovernmental fiscal transfers, which have, which has worked very well over the years. Um, but also, if you go to India, a big country, uh, and you have states which have developed well-developed transfer systems over the last decade. I will mention, for example, a state like West Bengal. You will see the, the Grand Panchaya system there has developed very well in terms of service delivery. And I will say that the intergovernmental fiscal transfer system and the way it has been designed to promote performance in finance management, governance, service delivery, has really promoted uh, and improved uh, economic development in, in West Bengal. But also, also other states have, have come along the line. So, uh, and you go then to uh, the Pacific, uh, where you can choose Solomon Islands, uh, where you see that the Provincial Capacity Development Fund, PCDF, which was developed about 10 years ago with support also from, from UNCDF, is now taken over by the central government, and they have four-doubled the amount of money going to the provincial government there. And you see a huge impact on service delivery. Uh, you know, It's even so that the, the sector funding has started moving through local governments because they can see it's more effectively done at the local level by the provincial government than by the sector ministry. So, so the Solomon Island is a very good example of how fiscal transfers can improve service delivery in the, in the Pacific uh, countries with the middle-sized country in the Pacific world. And Tuvalu has now tried to learn from that and, you know, using the same experiences on, on that, but linking it to climate change funding again. So I think these are, you know, the examples from, from, from various parts of the, the world uh, where in, in, in a new country in Europe, Kosovo, I can tell you that we have been working in Kosovo on and grant systems as well for, for the municipalities. And it is in the incipient phases, and, but also linked with the, with the performance. And uh, my expectation is that it will improve the, the local government services there as well. Uh, I don't want to mention any specific European countries, but I, uh, all of them are using intergovernmental fiscal transfers, and they have a reform program going on all the time. It's not like you have a transfer system and then you can lay back. And No, we always look at the experiences from other countries are 
and, and you try to improve on it. For example, on improving on the allocation criteria or other aspects of the grants. All the countries in, in Europe are exchanging experiences and try to really to improve on the design. But, but of course, they really use it for, for local service delivery and to strengthen the, the objectives of, the, of those grants. Uh, so that's, that's the idea. But of course, there are also other places where you have seen uh, transfers have been decreasing because of fiscal crisis and, and other reasons. And, and there the services have, have gone the, the wrong way. Uh, you know. So that's, but, but fortunately, some of them are now trying to reform the system of local government. One example of that is in Zimbabwe, where the transfers have been completely uh, derailing the last 10 years. But now the, the Ministry of Finance and the government is trying to bring it back on track and uh, make a more predictable transfer system to local government, despite the fiscal crisis there. And that will help service delivery because that has been really nearly absent at the local level because of lack of, of transfers from central to local government. Um, so that's an example of a problematic case, but where something hopefully will happen over the next five years. Right. Yeah. Very clear, Jesper. No, thank you very much indeed. So one of the other issues that often comes up when this is mentioned is, well, local governments are corrupt and they have no experience or no capacity. Now, you mentioned Uganda, for example, um, 20 years or more of experience in implementing this system, and in some countries it's hundreds of years. How would you answer that question? Are local governments all corrupt? Do they have no capacity, or is that, uh, is that outdated? Is it, or, 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 or uh, no, what? of course there they is. There they are, 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 of course, these challenges in, in all the countries, but they are equally there at the central level. So it is, uh, if you have countries with corruption, you will see it all over the, the place, in private sector, central government, local government. The question is, is not whether it's there or not. The question is how you can combat it to the extent possible. You can reduce it. You can never get rid of it, but you can reduce it. And actually, it's often easier to reduce it at the local government level because of a number of reasons. First of all, the accountability can be improved at that level better than at the central level. You can have more monitoring from the, from the civil society, participatory planning, public hearing, you can have control of local politicians to an extent which can be hard at the big country at the central level. Um, also, you can use the, 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 the central government monitoring system. And you can monitor, you can improve reporting systems, accountability, audit, inspection. These are old-fashioned systems, but they are still working. And then finally, you can, through the transfers, you can incentivize local government to be more open, to be more transparent, to have a better governance. Uh, and you can announce these performance results for the citizens so that if they can see that their local governments are not having a good governance or they are corrupt or they are misusing funds, that they have lost funding. And then they'll start complaining and they put pressure on their local politicians. So you can, through the transfer system, really incentivize that these aspects of corruption and inefficiency are reduced to the extent possible. So I think that there are better opportunities at the local level. Uh, people are always saying, ah, you just spread the corruption. <laughs> you know, but, but no, you can actually do more at the local level to reduce it. You can never get rid of it, but you can reduce it to much better level than at the central level because you have these tools of accountability, transfers, and other tools where you can, you can strengthen the interaction between citizens and, and the local politicians. 
Um, so, so I would say that uh, it's not black and white. It's not like whether you have it or not, but it's really how you can reduce it and, and to the to the manageable level and promote, you know, incentivize that efficiency and, and governance uh, will be promoted. And that's what, the reason why I like the performance-based plans because there you have a very transparent system where you allocate funding according to how they absorb the funding, but also how well they utilize the money, uh, whether they use them transparent, whether you can see how the funds have been spent, financial management reports, clean audits, and so on and so forth. And you can really promote uh, uh, that, uh, especially corruption is, is reduced if you have credible performance assessments and you link your grant system, your transfer system to that. Um, so, so that is, a, 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 of course, not easy, but, but is there. So I know. So I think it shouldn't. And then the, the capacity issue. When you travel around uh, in the local, many people who are saying that has never moved to a local government. When you really go there, you see that they have the same education, typically as the central levels official. They have been, they have been at the same universities. You, uh, they, 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 but of course they might not have the same number of staff. Uh, they could have less staff, uh, less trained staff. So, but to uh, the very comprehensive capacity building programs in most LDC countries at the moment, and uh, the capacity has really improved over the last decades. And uh, more can be done, but it's not as as, as poor as we often say. Um, but it's often an excuse for central government to keep back the funding and spend them essentially yeah. um, on workshops and other stuff. Um, but uh, the capacity is not so so poor at the local level. If you go out and, and really talk with the people there and. Uh, and give them the support which uh, they deserve in terms of training, updating of skills, guidelines, and things like that. Often it's also a question of giving the right guidance. You know, so some countries just transfer money out there without budget guidelines, without uh, grant manuals, without you know any support. And then, it, of course, it's prone to go wrong. Um, but if you back it up with with these things, you can really build up the capacity to to uh, to the same level or even higher than at the central level. So I, I think uh, there's like a lot of good examples of, of that around the world, um, but um, but of course it's always a challenge to design effective capacity building programs when you have, for example, 4,000 local governments like uh, in, 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 in a country like Bangladesh. But even there, the capacity is not so poor. If you go to the lowest local, local government level, then you you talk with people and you see how they manage their accounts and the books of you know the assets and. Yeah, they have uh, they have the they have the capacity. The question is, uh, of course, the willingness also, but that you can promote through these systems I talked about. One could even argue that the capacity is greater because um, at central level, people are used to, if you like, seeing things from a bird's eye view, but not delivering, uh, not doing practical investments, practical management, of practical activities. Whereas at the local level. Yeah. That is where the things are done. And also, that is where multiple responsibilities are uh, juggled. Uh, and that's where trade-offs are made between different departments, different aspects. And it's also where the where the citizen meets the state. It's where the, the accountability, often the political accountability is. So you don't get any, many of these features you don't get uh, in central government agencies, but you you get them all together uh, at, at the local yeah, level. Exactly. Yeah. The sectors are much closer together. They can work together in a multi-sectoral manner. They can work closer with the uh, recipients. 
they can have meetings whereby they decide how to spend the funding. They can follow up on that, uh, you know, if well designed. So I think there's a lot of participatory techniques which can really improve and reduce what uh, on the aspects you mentioned, the inefficiency and corruption. There's, there are more tools which can work easier at the local level because of the distance, the, the knowledge, and uh, and the fact that you can work across the sectors, as you said. Right. Um, so that's very, very important. Um, so I'd like to come on now to the issue a little bit of climate adaptation and the way in which, I mean, if one is to believe the science and if we are to build a world that can accommodate the human race in the future, then a huge amount of adaptation needs to take place. And a lot of that is water management, uh, drainage, water storage, runoff management, irrigation, etc. A lot of it is about construction materials. A lot of it is about uh, roads and, and bridges and strengthening those. There's a huge amount of investment and retrofitting that needs to be done if we are to secure the planet for future generations. Now, most of that, even the land use planning is another element, most of that falls under the mandate of local governments. And there are initiatives yeah. like the one that we have worked on, the Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility, which attempts to direct climate finance to local governments. But still, um, the Green Climate Fund and the main climate funds don't have local governments in the picture. And when one talks about climate finance, it's rare that one talks about local government finance in the same breath. How can we yeah. change this? How can we make local government finance one of the main conduits, one of the main channels for management, planning, delivery of climate adaptation? Uh, because uh, without doing that, we will simply not be able to adapt. It, this is not something for the local government lobby. It's something for the world to come to understand yeah. that unless local government finance is the principal channel for climate finance, we will not yeah. have a future on this planet. Sorry to be dramatic, but as they say, when your hair is on fire, behave as if your hair is on fire. Unfortunately, I don't have much hair left, but um, that is what is happening right now. So how, Jesper, are we going to do this? Very small, still a very small amount which is available at the local level. Less than five percent of the funding available for climate change is, is at the local level, and and we really need to do more in this area. I think when we talk, we can do much in many areas, but I think when we talk about intergovernmental fiscal transfers, that's one of the areas where we really can do much more than than have been done so far. And the, the small pilots which we have in about a handful of countries now, it's ten to twelve countries, which are very important. We need to demonstrate um, that uh, this is uh, the way forward because we can actually link the existing transfer systems, the capital grant system, with the climate change funding. If you demonstrate that if you walk the extra mile, if you improve your investments, you strengthen your bridges, you strengthen your roads, you uh, do uh, better agriculture, diversify your agriculture products, you make more resilient crops and things like that, and you train local governments in that, then you can use the existing grant systems like a top-up of, of funding if they do more in those areas, combined with capacity building support, awareness raising, volatility assessment, climate risk assessment, so they, that local governments are identifying the, 
the right areas where they see the vulnerability before they, it happens. They, they do integrate into planning, budgeting, actually use of funds, and they address the aspects of climate change, the impact from climate change in all aspects of public finance and management, all the way from the planning to the monitoring and auditing. That system, if you link it to what I mentioned earlier on, the performance-based plans, where you have annual performance assessments of these local governments' performance in those areas, you will see great incentives and you'll see big improvements in how they can address uh, the climate change uh, risk. Uh, so I see a lot of potential in um, linking the, the climate change with the transfer systems uh, in performance-based climate resilient grants. And um, now... The Green Climate Fund is quite aware of that, but they want to see it working in a number of years to see that to see the demonstration impact, and then I hope that it will open up for these big funding agencies over time. And UNCDF has piloted; they have received funding from the EU, from other bilateral development partners, from the governments in the countries where UNCDF is working as well. But still, the, the amount of funding is, is too limited compared to, as you said, to the huge, huge challenges we are facing. So we really need to get the bigger, you know, investments, uh, funding agencies like the World Bank, like Green Final Fund, to open up their eyes to see that this can actually happen and that local governments can have a strong role there. But of course, they need to be combined with the accountability, reporting, you know, the, the, the assurance that the, the funds are, the extra funds are also used targeted in the vulnerable areas. Because it can easily be your business like usual, you provide more funds, but no, nothing is happening. They just do the, the normal business. So you really need uh, to, to link it to, to the, the performance assessment system, whereby you, they, they also push the local governments a little bit in terms of the incentives to, to do more in this area, but then combined with the capacity building support. Um, so this, uh, yeah, this is an area where I've seen, uh, because you're right, uh, even in the countries I'm working in now, in, in Zambia, in uh, Uganda, and also in Mozambique, there is a huge impact from, for example, from flooding, from droughts, and from other challenges, and local governments are simply not prepared sufficiently for that. And you go to the Pacific countries, you see other problems like... Uh, like uh, security in terms of increasing water, where people can move when there is uh, flooding there, but, but that is increasing in the water level. But but it is important that service delivery is that is factored in. The schools are you know made more stronger to address this. And the capital grant systems we talked about earlier is a very important instrument, and it should not be a parallel system. It should be integrated into the existing system. But you need to ensure that the extra funding you provide is used efficiently to address uh, the adaptation there. And it's very important with the adaptation because um, for mitigation, it's more a central level. You can also do a bit at the local level, but it is actually where the, uh, the lo local comes, uh, can, can do much more in the area of adaptation and needs to do much more. Otherwise, we'll see these problems everywhere where the flooding will, will, will lead to a lot of challenges, and and the same with the drought, the same with the yeah, even even the random rain now, uh, it is it's a big problem. Uh, I just one of my colleagues is working in Namibia, and he said they haven't had rain there in, in, in many local governments for four to five years, and they used to have. So, but the local governments are not prepared in terms of their way they are doing the agriculture, the farming, and and uh, and all this, and suddenly the rain will come very heavily. And then you have other problems with bridges, roads, and, and other structures. So there's a need to start the planning process to cost these extra, you know, the efforts uh, 
strengthen all kind of construction to improve and prepare to do early warning systems to alarm systems to have citizen awareness programs how to address it and it's only the local governments which can do that because they are they face to face with local people there and they and they know how to do it and how to integrate it into the planning process so i think we really need to persuade more also development partners to contribute to this area uh, so far they are but but uh, they are important but there is much more which, which can actually be done there in that area to attract a huge amount of money and the bad thing is that most of these uh, the pledge funding is not used because they're looking for good projects around the world, but, but they have not really been looking seriously at the local government opportunities there. And, uh, they only look at the big cloth uh, programs in Himalaya and, and things like that, and, and that uh, takes uh, several years to prepare these big programs. But, but the small here now daily running programs and projects, that's where we can do a, a lot of impact if we put more funding there through the, the government, intergovernmental fiscal transfer systems. Yeah, I think you put your foot yeah. on it. This issue of this small, the here and now, that is where the adaptation is. It's not necessarily yeah. in the big projects. It's in the regular way of doing things. Because if you think about it, we always, yeah. uh, we've always adapted to the climate. We're adapting to the climate now. It's just about continuing to adapt as the climate uh, changes. Now, I'd like to maybe just uh, uh, mention a couple of examples and then come down to the issue of local procurement. So there was one country that I was uh, working in where at the Ministry of Water, they were trying to put together uh, a database of every single borehole and well uh, in this huge country. Um, uh, and so they could have mapped out every single water source. And a lot of them were little springs, little boreholes, wells, etc., in rural areas, as well as uh, in all the urban areas. Uh, and it was this enormous database that, that a lot of money was being put into, uh, putting together with these huge aerial photographs. And then I asked them the question, who is actually responsible for providing this water? I said, well, the boreholes are maintained by the local governments. They're dug by the local governments. The local governments then uh, distribute the water, whether it's rural or urban. That's their responsibility. So the question was, so why do you even need this information at a central level? So, well, it was so we can monitor what they're doing, so we can check, etc. Now, this, of course, is a huge country of an enormous expanse. So the possibility of physically visiting each and every town and city and rural local government is very small. And, it, and, and effectively, what seemed to be happening was just a centralization of the funding, whereas the mandate for delivery was local. So it's what's known as an unfunded mandate. So the responsibility for delivering that water is local, but the funding was all going into this huge project, which was a big uh, multi-million uh, dollar project for rural water. And that gets to your point that a lot of the climate finance is going into these big projects like the one I've just described, whereas actually if the same amount of money was distributed through the local government system through performance-based grants, you would get more efficient delivery in many, many, many small investments rather than through one yeah. big project. And you wouldn't have the overheads of project management uh, either. I mean, you, you, you and your time must have seen some really good examples of how local delivery and local procurement of the companies to do that delivery has worked better because local procurement means that the companies that you hire are using local labor, they are local companies themselves, 
and the contract is managed locally by the local government versus this project that I'm talking about, the procurement was international. So, of course, it was a, a company from a different country that was providing all the services and there was less impact on the local economy. I agree with you that uh, it is extremely important that uh, these, these systems are localized and also you can use uh, for simple uh, contracting like uh, that, that uh, many of these small roads and bridges and so on, you can actually use uh, community contracting with this, you know, um, uh, using the local labor and you make agreement about how the the, the payment is and so on, the minimum level. I think one of the you know successful countries in this area has been Bangladesh, where you have um, community contracting for rural roads and uh, they are constructing it. You go out, you see groups of uh, 50 people, they're, they're working, they're you talk with them, they are happy for the work, they can, you can see they can deliver much cheaper than if you bring a big company from uh, from Dakar. And uh, so I think this is very important. The same in Bhutan, there's also a very, and, and there's also very clear guidelines for how to handle community contracting, how to ensure that uh, local companies are involved, how they are, they are paid, and on what kind of projects they can do and what kind of projects they can't do, because of course there are big water supply systems where you need more know, developed uh, technical skills and things like that. But but other, other functions you can easily uh, do at the local level uh, through this contracting mechanism. And, and then you have, of course, a different systems of user committees whereby you control the quality of the contractors. So you have... Um, that, that's another very important uh, aspect. And there are many countries which have good experiences from that, uh, in Asia particularly, where you have user committee. So every time a local government starts a, a project, you, they appoint a, a monitoring committee of users so that the contractors are not running around and doing things which they are not supposed to do, uh, and also that the quality is up to date. Um, and and uh, follow up on the contractors and things like that. But of course, uh, they are I've also seen opposite experiences of centralized procurement where central government thinks that it's better to centralize that and you see a lot of corruption going into that at the central level and a lot of inefficiencies because you, you cannot do everything from the center, the companies are not available and just for them to move out in the local level will cost them so much and they, you, you can't do it from the central level. So. Local procurement is extremely important uh, and also in both in terms of making good guidelines and supporting that training, the contractors at the local level to do uh, simple investments um, and, and then try to avoid doing everything by the central procurement board. Uh, this is not, is not going to work. Um, a very bad experience from that I can remember and I know you worked there as well was in East Timor where they tried to centralize all procurement uh, away from districts to the to the, to the end there, and the, 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 it was completely impossible to handle, and it could take two to three years to get a contractor to do any work in the end. Uh, but that was bad advice from from you know from the from other countries saying, ah, you should do centralized procurement. The districts do not have the capacity to do uh, district uh, procurement, and it went very 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 wrong. So I am very much in support of of local procurement as well with clear uh, guidelines, but also follow-up and assessment of, of, of course, some monitoring of that as well is important, but but uh, the procurement should follow the the, the money as well. Uh, it can't be done centrally by, by central procurement boards. Um, right. And also you develop the local economic you know situation. You develop small-scale companies. You get, they, they will get training over time. 
and and so on. So it's also a economic, local economic development initiatives really to use the smaller companies. Um, but of course, it cannot be friends who are hiring friends. It needs to be clear rules of, of the games and ensuring that um, that nepotism is not coming into the procurement processes as well. So there is need for, again, to follow up on this. The performance assessment systems I mentioned in the beginning also typically have performance indicators on how well transparent the procurement processes have been done at the local level, and you can you can really promote that and you can check up on that to some extent. So, so basically, a combination of uh, doing as much as possible locally, backed up by good guidelines, uh, you know, systems, manuals, you know, procedures, but also training and awareness raising, and then some monitoring of whether these rules of the games are followed well. Um, and then strengthen the capacity of the local contractors to to implement. It is, I think, the package which will work in, in most places. But often we are just saying, no, the capacity is not there. Let's centralize in the uh, procurement boards, which can never... And then the whole thing is docked. Um, right. To do uh, central procurement in some of many of the countries I'm working in, it takes more than one year to get you know a contract through all the stages and all the so-called negotiations and... Uh, so many steps to go through. So, local governments do not have that time available. They need to, they need to do things within the year of a budget and a plan. So, but if it takes more than a year for the central procurement to, to conduct that, that is not going to work. No, exactly, exactly. So, very, very clear, Jesper. I think um, just just to finish the conversation, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about uh, urban uh, areas, and particularly in the rapidly urbanizing. Uh, parts of Africa and uh, Southeast Asia. So, I mean, you've been very comprehensive and clear in outlining the role of intergovernmental fiscal transfers. And we've touched on how if we really want to drive climate resilience, that's what we have to do to boost the the climate finance traveling through them. But we've also touched on how even in terms of the procurement process, there's a lot of advantages to spending that money through local procurement. So I, I think that picture has been laid out uh, for the listeners. But somebody uh, might be asking, well, this all sounds good in a, in a rural area, in a small town, but I'm living in a city that already has a million people in it or half a million people in it. And the intergovernmental fiscal transfers from central government are a small percentage of the revenue in my city. What happens in urban uh, areas, these rapidly growing towns and cities? How does it all work there? Because the proportion of intergovernmental fiscal transfers as local revenue is much smaller. Uh, Over to you. Yeah, yeah. people might think that in the urban authorities, they will not need intergovernmental fiscal transfers. But that case, actually, if you look at the, uh, particularly the World Bank programs in LDC countries, uh, you can look at Ethiopia, Uganda, Tanzania, even uh, go to middle income Kenya, Ghana. Then, then you see that, that it's really focusing on urban development investment programs using the intergovernmental fiscal transfers. But in the way where it's always linked to the performance uh, initiatives, particularly performance on all sorts of revenue mobilization, financial management, governance, and uh, procurement. And why? The reason is that over time, of course, these urban authorities should be able to mobilize much better revenues on, on their own. But often they, they're not doing it because they might not have the, the skills. But more importantly, they might not provide you know the, the efforts into the system. 
So if you can link it to some kind of, in the beginning, some kind of uh, accountability incentive system, you will see that you can actually address some of these issues and, and try to develop more sustainable urban finance systems, which could over time break the, the way into private funding in terms of you know municipal bonds and things like that, which will be later when the PFM systems have been improved and when they know what, what is happening in, in the area of um, of, of uh, you know planning and finance management, uh, revenue mobilization is more stable and so on and so forth. But but we are actually working in many many countries where with urban grants as well. But but more strategically, um, there there are typically two ways to go. Either you have transformative grants where you provide a huge amount of funding over a short period of time in order to transform the urban economy. Uh, one example, if you go to Gulo in Uganda, the, the, the transfers over the last four or five years have been ten-doubled uh, through um, World Bank performance-based grants. And you see a transformation there. Roads are coming up, uh, parks, everywhere, and drainage systems. Everyone knows that it's not, it's not um, sustainable in the longer run to give that amount of grants, but it will transform the city into a, a place where investments can come in and then more revenues will be mobilized over time because these investments will last for at least 30 years. Uh, so you pump in money for short-term uh, impact and then you see transformation. That's one way to go. Another way is to slowly develop urban you know, funding systems. They also provide some small amount of grants to stimulate that, but it will take a longer time. Uh, there we, we, we have other examples of that. But uh, I see the, the tendency now for particularly the World Bank funding program to focus on the the urban uh, authorities more and more because they can, particularly the secondary cities, maybe not the capital cities, which have uh, special, you know, as you always say, uh, possibilities to mobilize funding. And, but the secondary cities, which are the big cities, we still need some support uh, in, over the, in the bridging period and particularly need improved management systems, finance management, revenue mobilization, land register systems, and all this. So you combine it with, you know, performance grants, capacity building support, and better rules and regulations and backstopping support. And then you see improvements over time. Ethiopia is a very good example of that. You will see tremendous improvement in in the performance of uh, the urban local governments in, in Ethiopia. And uh, at the moment, there are around 100 of them covered by uh, the program. But it used to be starting with a small uh, 18, then 24, then 48, then it was upscaled uh, gradually. Uh, but uh, I think Ethiopia also try at the same time to develop a city, fiscal uh, uh, decentralized strategy whereby the own source revenues over time will be improved so that the transfers will supplement but not be the main revenue source for, for the urban authorities. But I, I think uh, even in Europe, most of the, the urban authorities are also getting transfers um, one kind of the other, also to address what I mentioned in the beginning, externalities. They might not do sufficient efforts in certain sectors, so you need to stimulate that, uh, ensure that they, they provide environmental protection, water purification, parks, things which benefit not only their local government but also other local governments. So there are still there will still be need for for transfers, David. There will not be something that you can say urban authorities will over time disappear for that. No, no, they. All the capital cities around the world are getting one kind of and the other support from from the from the central government uh, in one way or the other. 
but uh, it has to be designed a little bit more strategically. And I see a tendency that you cannot uh, treat all local governments in, with the same methodology, same tools. You see more and more a tendency to have specific urban programs, specific transfer systems, even investment menu where you can spend money only on urban you know, activities. Um, the same in the legal framework. Many countries have special laws, regulations for the big uh, urban cities. And it's very hard to compare that uh, with, the, with the rural ones, and, and uh, you need to, to design the programs accordingly. Um, so, uh, and yeah, so that's that's a, a, a quite short answer to that question, but um, I'll be happy to, to explain more. Thank you. So, just one final question then on this: How does this relate to the issue of blended finance? How do you see urban? intergovernmental fiscal transfers relating to local government access to capital markets? I mean, could the intergovernmental fiscal transfers uh, received by urban local governments be used as a public contribution to a wider blended finance structure? I mean, have you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, over the medium to longer term, uh, of course, in, depending on, in some countries, it would be short term even, but... Um, what is very important for uh, private sector investments in, uh, in local governments, a number of things we have to look at there. First of all, we need to look at the, the performance of the municipalities in the area of finance management, revenue mobilization, whether they know how, many, how much debt they already have, they know the, can they report, are they accountable, are they well managed and all this. So there we can use the transfer system, performance-based grant system, to stimulate that they improve these systems so that they can easily get access to the private market. Because the private market will only invest if they know what is happening in the local government. They will never easily, If they go to a local government and ask, can I see your accounts, and they see very poor accounts, they know cash books up there are not up to date, or all this, they will never invest. But, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that, of course, you need to have a good regulatory framework where the rules are very clear, the transfers are predictable from central government so that uh, the investor will know exactly how much money you have available, when you have them available, and all this. So again, transfer system can improve the predictability and the funding of, of local governments in, in that area. Um, and then you can also uh, help uh, breaching. You bring them together. You stimulate. You help developing good projects which are bankable, so that you have um, you you can uh, stimulate local because local governments might have a good finance management system. They might have you know good revenues, but they don't know exactly how to design well-developed projects in terms of you know uh, income generating activities. So if you can bring and help them to, to bring them together with private partners to go into a partnership model there, uh, building up the capacity of local government to both prepare projects, monitor, and also make them bankable over time. Uh, so I think that's a very important part as well uh, to, to stimulate uh, the capacity and awareness, but also to uh, open up and, and bridge between the private sector, which might not be aware of that, and then the local government, uh, which is coming in. Um, so, so this is the, the, uh, the, the, some of the means to, towards uh, involvement. But I will say in the, of course, the sustainable manner is to really ensure that they are, the local governments are seen as a critical partner. They are doing projects as they have promised to do. They are planning. They are doing investments in, in 
a proper manner. Uh, they are not corrupt, as we discussed in the beginning, and uh, they are trustworthy. And, uh, and then over time, you can develop creditworthiness and that. But of course, you can have, they have, they, there are different countries which have also established different kind of uh, intermunicipal funding uh, schemes and, and all this. But uh, if the other things are not working, that will also not work. Um, it can only uh, stimulate, you know, experience sharing and, and, uh, uh, but we really need to have the basics done properly. And, uh, and, and so, so also there, the, the, the design of the transfer system is, is extremely important. For example, if, if a local, if a central government start bailing out poorly performing local governments, giving deficit grants, giving, you know, bailout when they don't pay their debts and all this stuff, then you will never see any improvements and then the private sector will never invest as well. Um, there was a big local government in, in, in Africa, I will not mention the country, but where we did a very detailed study of the creditworthiness of that. And everyone thought that they will be easily creditworthy, but they didn't even know how much existing borrowing they had and what it was the debt in different departments. And there was no overview of that. Before you get that clear, you will never be able to invest uh, more. And so there are a number of these basic conditions which, um, which we should be tackled. Um, that's also an area where the PIFA, I, uh, the PIFA assessment tool could perhaps be strengthened and they, when I'm looking at, you know, these aspects, but of course, already now the, the PIFA assessment is a tool to, to over time to, to focus on some of these improvements. Um, but I will say more targeted performance assessment system, which is focusing on indicators, which over time will bring the municipalities into a more creditworthy situation, will be a very good place to start. Uh, and then, as I said, try to help local governments in identifying projects which they can to the private sector uh, arrangement is also important. But there, there are also countries where the amount of money available is, is a, a big problem. So you can have a crowding out of, of private investments if you do too many public investments. So that is uh, also seen in some countries. So there you need to bring external funding in as well from, from other places than what is available internally in the country. Right. Um, that, that was the, the case in another country I was working in where we looked at the amount of money available in the private banks compared to the investment needs in terms of capital investment and it was simply not available in the big banks in that country even. And if they start doing that, there would be nothing left for private investment. So there are countries where there is a need for external funding as well for local governments. And um, so far it has been done very much through the central government through with on, on kind of on link to they, the central government take a loan from different uh, agencies, and then they, they transfer that amount, that proceed to the local government as a grant. That's the model which has been used in many places so far. It has to be efficient projects. Uh, we need to have an economy of internal rate of uh, return and things like that, because if you just take a lot of loans and, and you don't are not able to pay them back, and you don't see the economic development, also will not it will not make sense. So, so we need to be careful with that model as well. But I think from development partners, uh, development partners can help strengthening the the capacity, the functionality of local governments, and also help them linking up with the, with the private market, and also improving the the regulatory framework for borrowing in the country uh, and things like that. That's that's where the first starting point should be. Yes, I think that's very clear, Jesper. So thank you so much for the interview. I think you've given us. Um a real oversight of the whole issue 
of local government finance and intergovernmental fiscal transfers. And we always end these interviews uh, with um, a couple of kind of different kind of questions to understand the type of person uh, you are and your your interest. So the first question to you, Jesper, would be, this is outside of the city you grew up in and outside of the city you live in. What is your favorite city and why? Uh, outside of the, uh, the cities, yeah. Uh, it cannot be the city you grew up in and it cannot be the city no, you are no. living in. It has to be a different one. What is your favorite city and why? No, I'm generally not a, a city person. When I go on on holiday, uh, I will typically I will typically go to the countryside. So actually, uh, it is hard for me to say. But there are cities we. But I will probably then select cities in Australia. Uh-huh. I will probably select uh, Adelaide, Perth, uh, the cities which are uh, in. in uh, I really like the Australian cities uh, because it's relaxed. There are nice parks, the green areas, and things are working. There are the functionalities there. So I, I look more at the um, at how how the city is, is functioning, the, the green areas, like uh, and areas like that. Uh, these are things which are very important for me. The botanic gardens there, and the things which are working. You know, drainage system is working. The good restaurants, good food. Things like that. It's, it's very important, um, and um, and I, and of course, um, that, that's what. what uh, yeah, I would probably go to. And and then the the cities where there is uh, good, you know, but that is combined with a strong culture. There are very nice cities in, uh, in in Germany, but the countryside. I prefer, the, of course, to go to other places. But there are very nice cities in Germany to to visit, uh, like. Uh, um, Heidelberg and uh, the cultural city where the universities are there. A lot of uh, young people in, investing in culture. So, so these are probably quite good cities to visit in Scandinavia. I think they are all nice cities like Stockholm, Oslo, uh, and so on. Um, again, London is more for the cultural activities and the football games. So <laughs> I also like that. But uh, so, so. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is what I can say. Um, it's a long time since I've been to Paris, so I don't know how it has developed uh, since I was there 15 years ago. It used to be in OECD quite a few times, but it could have been developed in the good or the wrong, the wrong direction. I'm not sure. But yeah, I prefer the countryside to go on hiking and bicycling and things like that. And I have the opportunity to do that. Uh, in terms of working... I probably prefer to work in in, uh, in Mesopiki African areas and to work in uh, in Kampala because it has a good combination of uh, a lot of new reforms, a lot of activities. Uh, you can walk around quite safely in the in the evenings, and uh, and uh, yeah, so you feel and and there are green parks and areas as well. So. Uh, but I think it's also going to be congested. I think most of the problems with, with, problem with, with you know, bigger cities are they are too congested. The traffic is completely uh, unregulated. It's hard to move around, uh, and it's getting worse and worse. Mm, so that is. Uh, I've just been working in Delhi uh, for, for two weeks. I stayed in the most polluted uh, time, and in November we could not go out of the hotel for for two weeks. So that was not nice. Oh my goodness! Yes, I can see that. No, 
could not go. I have pictures. You could not, and people were walking with masks. And uh, I, so I only took a taxi to the bank and back again, and nobody were, were outside. And even your room, you have air cleaning systems, and it was terrible. My goodness. Hey. And it, I think that is getting to the problem in more and more countries, I guess. Okay, Jesper, that's really, really yeah. interesting. And Jesper, I know it must be getting quite late for you, so... Thank you so much indeed for your time, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, David, uh, from my side as well. Uh, it was great. All the best, Jesper, yeah. and, and have a good night. Okay, All the best. thank you very much, and have a nice uh, time. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Lowcast, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week.